Hey, good morning again, and welcome to part four in a teaching series that we're calling Finding Home. Home is one of the deepest longings of the human soul. To have a place where we are loved unconditionally, to have a place where we're known, where we're accepted, to have a place that feels safe and secure, that truly is one of the deepest longings that you or I have. Well, during this pandemic, one of the things that's been very important to us as a church is to look not only to our own needs, but to the needs of those around us. And as we've done that, one of the clear needs around us is to help more kids find home. Because right now, there's more than 100,000 kids who don't have a home in the United States. So what we've been doing is having a heart to heart conversation. How can we help? What can our church do to help? Well, in week one of this series, we looked at passages like this one from the book of Psalms. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. According to scripture, life is sacred and it's sacred from the womb. We are known, we are loved, and we are knit together by God, every one of us. And then Jesus set an example for us to follow when he welcomed children to himself and he blessed them. That was week one. Week two. In week two, we saw that the same God uses adoption as the primary or a primary metaphor to describe the relationship that we can have with him. As someone who's been adopted by a gracious father, welcomed into his family, if you want to be an imitator of God, one of the best ways you can do that is to adopt or to support someone who does. All right, that was week two. Last week, we talked about fostering. And I love that word foster. What a beautiful word. Foster is something that when we parent for a season, we have an opportunity to foster hope and dignity and respect and a deep sense that the person that we're fostering is worthy of love. Fostering. It's also one of the best ways that we can break cycles of poverty and cycles of abuse and cycles of homelessness and addiction and incarceration and so much more. If you want to make a difference in this world, one of the best things you can do, one of the most practical ways you can make a difference is to foster a child, foster a teen or to support someone who is. Especially right now, COVID has amplified the need. It is crushing systems. Well, we launched this series with these stats. In the United States, 100,000 kids need a home, and there are 400,000 churches. And we did the math. If just one in every four churches would find just one person to adopt or to foster, we'd bring that 100,000 number to zero. And here's what we discovered over the course of the series. We're not just a one in four church. We might just be a church where one in four of us are living this out. There's a lot of families here at Emmanuel whose story includes adoption or fostering, including my own. Two of my sisters are from Korea, and one of my adopted sisters has two adopted children of her own. Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a Zoom conversation on Thursday, December 3rd. And what this is all about is if, if you have questions, let's say you're not adopting, you're, you're, adoption, fostering is not a part of your family right now. Let's say you have questions about that. You want to learn a little bit more? We would love for you to come. 
And if you are currently living this out, if adoption or fostering is part of your story, we want to get us together and, and find out who these other folks are so that we have that connection, we can build those networks, and then also see where God, what God does with this. So we'd love for you to come and join us for that conversation. It's really easy. Just go to emmanuel.church slash register. Click the icon that says Finding Home Conversation. All right, that's where we've been. That's where we've been for the last three weeks. In this final week of our series, I want to pro- provide some biblical perspective to something that I see a lot of. And that's something that I see a lot of is inconsistency. Inconsistency. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. When it comes to compassion, our culture's inconsistency is astounding. If I could go back and do anything different with the politics series that we did in August, here's what I'd go back and do. I'd go back and dedicate at least one week to to pointing out how important it is to not just look at what people say, but to look at what they do. When it comes to compassion, and I'm just going to talk really straight here. When it comes to compassion, there are people, there are lots of them who claim to be on the side of God. They claim to be on the side of life, but many of those same people, they're not helping to make their churches safe spaces especially for those who are divorced or single moms or those who have had an abortion. Instead of those people, the ones who claim God, the ones who claim to be on the side of life, instead of them being the first to welcome these women in and welcome them home, some of the loudest pro-God, pro-life voices are some of the first ones to point fingers and to give cold shoulders and to give icy stares and to make judgmental comments. Does that seem inconsistent to anybody else? And there are people, lots of people, who claim to be all about love and freedom and tolerance. They claim to be champions for those who are without privilege, for those that don't have a voice at the table, and for those who aren't afforded the dignity of being considered fully human. But, if you even raise very fair questions of why they don't extend those same protections or that same dignity to a baby who is just months or weeks or even days from being born, if you raise those important questions, you're canceled, you're shouted down, you're called all kinds of names. Does that seem inconsistent to anybody else? Well, specific to this series, there are people, lots of them, who say you've got to choose. Who are you going to be an advocate for? Are you going to be an advocate for women or are you going to be an advocate for the unborn? Which one? Here's what I see when I study the life of Jesus. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Jesus was a consistent advocate for both women and children. There is so much inconsistency all around us. How did we ever get to a place where moms and children are pitted against one another? Well, in this final week of the series, as best I can with the time I have, I want to cast a vision. I want to cast a vision for consistency. 
When it comes to the sanctity of life, let's not be a people who cast a vote with one hand and cast a stone with the other. As I was praying about which passage to you to end this series with, um, I was praying and there was a passage I felt really strongly about teaching from. And this was this was before we even had the, the, the passages for the other the other uh, um, uh teachings in this in this series. And I was surprised that this one kept coming back and I felt so strong about this because this is a passage that doesn't even mention kids. The other reason I was surprised is there are those who would say this passage doesn't even belong in the Bible. Here's why they say that. Let me first tell you about the story, um, the passage. It's a familiar story to many of us. It's a story of a woman and she's caught in the act of adultery, and she's brought before Jesus. And there's powerful men that say she should be stoned to death because the law says she should. And, and Jesus usher, ushers these iconic words, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's the story. You've probably heard it before. Well, here's what a lot of people don't know. Um, this story is old. This story is really, really old. But here's the thing. It doesn't appear in the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts, they don't include this story at all. There's some that you can find that include it and include it right here in the book of John where we're gonna find it. And there's some that even include it in the book of Luke. Well, if this appears to be have been added later, why are we talking about it at all? Here's why. Look what it says in the book of John. The same book where we find this story in our modern Bibles. This is from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John also says this one, this one's even more explicit in the very next chapter. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here's my theory. My theory is that the passage we're going to look at today is one of those other things that Jesus said and did. Here's an example of a scholar who concurs. The story, this story, has every suggestion of historical veracity, suggesting it was indeed an event that occur occurred in the life of Jesus and was a story worthy of collection and recitation. All right, let's dig in. Let's dig into this text. Let's see what we can learn from it. All right, uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter eight, verses one through 11. Let's start with verses one through two. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. All right, where was Jesus in this passage? He was in the temple, in the temple. We are about to see an example of how broken things can get, how messed up things can get, even in the temple itself. And as we're continuing to read, let's ask ourselves, if people come to our temple courts, what do they see? What do they see? Do they see a lot of, of condemnation? Do they see a lot of ugly politics? Or will they find people who are trying to sincerely, sincerely become more like Jesus? All right, let's go continue on. We're gonna go with verses three through five. Three through five. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in their midst. They said to him, teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? <laughs> All right, let's talk about this. The scribe and the Pharisees, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, these two, these two sets of characters, they were serious about their faith. The scribes were experts in the law and the Pharisees were so careful about keeping commandments that they tithed right down to the spices that grew in their gardens. I'm not making that up. One of the things that gets lost in translation here is that the original Greek emphasizes that the scribes and Pharisees, they're framing this as a legal matter. A law had been broken. It was one of God's laws and the punishment was death. And so they're all, what do you say, Jesus? They frame this as a sincere desire to do justice. But there's already an inconsistency here. The law says that she, that the law that she's broken says that both she and the person she committed adultery with should be put to death. So where's the guy? Where's the guy? Isn't that a timeless question? Where's the guy? Well, sure enough, the narrator affirms this really isn't about justice. It's about something else. We find what that something else is here. Verse six, they said this to test him, that they may have some charges to bring against him. Okay, this was not about real justice. This is about defeating somebody that they perceive as an enemy, that they perceive as a threat. This is ugly politics. And caught in the middle is this woman who's been pulled out into public. Again, where's the guy? She's all alone. She's surrounded by powerful men and her shame is on display for the world to see. How many times have people been used as political pawns? As others attempt to demonstrate their own self-righteousness or bait other people into a trap? This is just one of many instances where people tried to trap Jesus. <laughs> and I bet many of you can testify to this. If you set out to sincerely follow Christ and not the crowd, you are going to anger people to the right and to the left. Has that ever happened to you? Where you, all you did is you saw this conversation. It wasn't a conversation. You saw this argument between these people. All you did was try to step in and try to get people to see both sides. And what did they do? Both sides turn on who? They turn on you. Well, here, the scribes and Pharisees, they're trying to get Jesus, check one box or the other, Jesus. Which side are you on? Are you going to obey God's law, which says stone this woman? Or are you going to obey Roman law, which says we don't have the authority to do that without their permission? Are you going to side with us men? Or are you going to side with that woman? Are you going to side with love? Or are you going to side with justice? Are you going to side with Moses or Caesar? People, they do the same thing today, don't they? They can't see how there could be a both and. And they want to know which side are you on. I'm losing count of the number of purity tests that people want us to check a box on these days. Are you with Trump or are you with Biden? Which side? Are you with social justice or are you with law and order? Which side? Do you care about babies or do you care about women? Which side? Jesus didn't pick sides the way that most people pick sides. And let me show you something. There are a lot of reasons why I believe that this passage, John 
chapter eight, one through 11. I, I, I believe there's a lot of reasons why it fits really well right here. Here's one of them. Let's go to the next slide. Chapter eight begins with people wanting to stone who? To stone a woman to death. Chapter eight ends with them wanting to stone who? Stone Jesus. If you follow Jesus, that's gonna happen to you too. All right, let's go back to our text. They brought the woman before Jesus. They made their case. They said, Jesus, give your ruling. Then they stepped back all smug, waiting for Jesus to fall into their trap. What did Jesus do? Let's take a look. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. He said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Man, that would have rocked their world, pun intended, and pun intended for you, Kurt. You may have moved to Texas, but you can't get away from the puns that easy. All right, Jesus, what does he do? He takes the mob way off their script. They came with a legal case. And if you go by the book, if you go to Deuteronomy 13.9, Deuteronomy 17.7, if you go there, the witnesses of the crime, they are the ones to cast the first stone. Jesus says, let he who among you is without sin, you cast the first stone at her. He's off script. He blows her script up. Here's something else that hit me while I was reflecting on this passage this week. Who was without sin? Jesus. Jesus could have cast that first stone, but he didn't. What did Jesus do instead? Oh, first, before we get to that, I invite you to write that down. Jesus could have cast the first stone. Jesus was without sin. He could have cast that first stone. Instead, here's what he chose to do. And once more, it says in verse 8, once more, he bent down and write, wrote on the ground. What is with all this writing in the dust? We don't know for sure. It could have been he was deflecting attention away from that woman. It could have been he was trying to slow things down. So instead of people thinking with what they call the lizard brain, the fight or flight, they began to think with the other parts of their brain. In fact, maybe he did this. Maybe he wrote, where's the guy? Or maybe he wrote down Exodus 23.1, which says, don't help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Maybe it was a single word that he wrote, like love. Maybe it was two words that are held in tension, like justice and mercy. We don't know what he wrote, but we do know what happened next. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 11. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Another great candidate for something that Jesus could have written there on the ground is this, Micah 6, 8. It says, he showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? The mob, they came with cries for justice. But what else does the Lord require of us 
He requires us to also love mercy and to also walk humbly with our God. In Jesus, the word says, the fullness, the fullness of God dwelt. Jesus loved mercy. Jesus walked humbly. And Jesus took sin very, very seriously. How seriously? It cost him his life. I came across this quote this week. It's a great summary of what we've just talked about. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. Emmanuel family. As much as it depends on us, let's make this a place where people can start life anew. Can I get an amen wherever you are? Thank you. All right, here's our invitation for you today. Disciples of Jesus should extend the kind of kindness that Christ extended to women. Kindness. Kindness will lead more people to repentance than any mob or any stone or any mean tweet or any cancellation ever will. When we do this, if we extend the same kind of kindness that Christ extended to women, and if we welcome and bless kids the way that Jesus did in a world as inconsistent as ours, consistency is going to shine like a city on a hill. You might just want to write that down. In today's account, a woman was surrounded by men who were prepared to kill her right there in the temple courts. In our day, as many as one in three women have been abused. Let that one sink in. One in three. As many as one in, one in four have had an abortion. Let that sink in. They've been hit enough. Can I get an amen? When women are with us, let's make sure that this is the safest place they know. Our world needs more people who are truly pro-life, not only pro-birth. I got one last quote for you. Here it is. The most powerful sermon that we can preach is what? It's the one we, the one we embody. Is it possible to be passionate about the sanctity of life and at the same time extend kindness to those who've made choices outside of God's boundaries? Of course it is. And we have a story of an ECC family that's living that out. You aren't going to find someone more passionate about the sanctity of life than Angie. And it's going to be really hard for you to find a family, a couple, that is more passionate about loving and caring for people than Angie and Jeff. Here's their story. 